0: Welcome to the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez-Vu, and I will be serving as your Femme tour, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into graduate school. For the past 10 years, I've been helping undergraduate students get into top graduate programs in their field, and I'm really excited to share this information with you too. Welcome, everyone, I am here today with another guest speaker, and this guest speaker is going to be talking to us about what faculty think and say about students. (laughs) I can't help but laugh because I'm like, oof, what's she gonna say? Um, Our guest today is Dr. Esther Trujillo, who happens to be a good friend of mine. Go ahead and get started by reading her bio. Dr. Trujillo is an assistant professor of Latin American and Latino Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. She obtained a PhD in Chicano Studies from UC Santa Barbara. She's also a former visiting faculty at the Center for Study of Race and Ethnicity at Brown University and Woodrow Wilson Fellow. Dr. Trujillo has also been published in the Journal of Latino Latin American Studies, Aslan. Latino Studies and Camino Real. So welcome to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thanks for inviting me.
0: Of course. So the first thing I know it's going to be, it feels a little weird for me to ask you because I know you, but the folks who listen to this podcast don't or may not know you. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, basically everything that led up to where you are today? Like you know, what led to you pursuing a PhD and now your current position at DePaul?
1: Yeah, so I'm a professor at DePaul. I teach Latin American and Latino studies, but I come from a working class background. My parents are immigrants. My dad is from Michoacan, Mexico, and my mom is from San Salvador, El Salvador. And so witnessing their difficulties, you know, from being undocumented to becoming US citizens and, and everything that that took um, really inspired me to investigate in more detail what exactly is it that immigrants go through um, and how do they overcome all of these challenges with what seems like joy. So my research surrounds this question of, you know, what is the trauma that folks have gone through, but how do they explain it to themselves and narrativize it in ways that make sense for their experiences. So uh, my work focuses mostly on children of immigrants who are from El Salvador, who left during the Salvadoran Civil War in the 80s. And, and it comes directly from my personal experience, because my mom was a wartime migrant. And I grew up, you know, in a multicultural household. Uh, was born in the US, but di- I didn't speak English until second grade. Um, And then, you know, things kind of happened for me quickly. Somebody decided to put me on a gifted and talented track early on, and they just kept me on that track. I know now that I pretty much got lucky. You know, there wasn't anything about me that was necessarily more meritorious than anyone else. Um, And I was selected on this track up until college. So I was able to go from high school directly into a four-year college. Uh, UCLA where I studied Chicano studies and when I was there uh, I learned uh, about research I learned that research can be a career Uh, I didn't know what a PhD was I didn't know that people who looked like me could have it Um, and I entered into the Mellon Mays uh, undergraduate fellowship program which is where we met I
0: know (laughs) well technically we met in FSP but I think we really actually met each other
1: we knew each other, but yeah. we really got to know each other in, in the Melon Mays program. In that program, they really encourage you and in, in many ways push you into academia. So that's what I did. I went into a PhD program, MA slash PhD program, which grants an MA on the way um, directly after graduating. So This is not a traditional track. And I I know some of your listeners may be wondering if this is how it's supposed to be. No, we all carve our own path. But for whatever reason, my path was to go straight through from high school to college to the PhD. Um, In my PhD, I studied under Professor Horacio Roque Ramirez um, and then under Professor Ralph Armbruster Sandoval. um, And I studied the experiences of Salvadoran youth. Uh, I've always been, you know, really deeply immersed in Chicano studies. My three degrees are in Chicana and Chicano studies. And so now my research focuses mostly on how do we define ethnicity and race? And what are the relationships between ethnicity and race for Latinos in the US? What does it have to do with migration? Uh, My work is interdisciplinary and um, there's not a lot, of professors who are of Central American heritage. So because of that, I get approached by graduate students from all around the country um, for content guidance, right? So your, your PhD committees or the professors who support you, some of them for sure have to be from your degree granting program, but you can also ask people who are not from your university to support you, and so I am on committees for people who do not study where I teach. Um, And I informally advise dozens of graduate students um, who were drawn to me because of our shared content area expertise. So I don't know if I've mentioned everything you want me to talk about, but that's who I am.
0: It was a big question. So you we could have gone on and on and on with just that question. Um, but yeah, I feel like you you answered it and segued us into the topic of um, graduate school and graduate students. And um, I know when I was an undergrad, I would constantly wonder, like, am I doing this right? What do professors do? Um, am I asking for too much? Am I bugging them? And what do they think about this process of applying? And so I would love to hear from your perspective as someone who is working with several graduate students and even more undergraduates, like what what do you think or what um, has been your experience or what have you observed being among other faculty about how they review and view the grad school application process?
1: Yeah, so I'll start by saying that I'm a tenure track professor, um, which is a an interesting situation to be in because I don't have tenure yet, but I'm on tenure track. Most faculty of color at the university are not on tenure track. They are contract, term faculty, adjunct faculty. So for graduate students, I think it's important to know that you know, when you're asking for help from a faculty member, they may not be in the best situation to support you all the time. We, we like to support you, we would like to have more time to support you. But for people who are on these various timelines, it can be really challenging, you know, to balance what is expected of us and what we need to do for our own livelihood. Um, and also, you know, being able to help the students who we know are, are, they need that content support. So as a tenure track professor, I have to get tenure soon. And that's my primary focus. So one of the interesting, I think, um, moments for for the podcast idea today was, what do what do professors think of graduate students? We actually we don't think about grad students very much.
0: <laughs> Saying it like it is
1: because we have yeah. a lot of things to do, and it's, you know, maybe that's my personal perspective, because in my department, we don't have a master's program or a PhD program. So we don't have graduate students around us all the time. We have a master's program that is connected, right? We have a critical ethnic studies master's. And so those students are in and out of our courses, um, petitioning graduate credit. And we support, of course, students across the university. But when graduate students have a need, they need to make it known. Otherwise, we go about our day with our other 10,000 things that we have to do. And we don't stop to think, oh, where's the draft of the proposal that so-and-so was supposed to send me? Um, I had an experience recently where there was a dissertation proposal defense and I had it on my calendar. So I saw it that week and I thought, how is there a defense and I haven't gotten a draft? The last time I heard from a student was months ago and it didn't occur to me to check in on on them. So when I was a student, my perspective on this was, you know, why are they, did they forget me? Why are they ignoring me? Do they hate me? Does my professor hate me? It's like, no, we, we don't hate you. We just have other things that we have to do that have more pressing visible deadlines. Um, so I think you know students can benefit from knowing that, you know, make yourself known in a courteous way um, so that we don't forget about your milestones and your timetable.
0: One thing that you're reminding me of when you're telling me that, well, one thing is you have so many things to do that you the first thing on your mind is not necessarily the graduate students or individuals that are reaching out to you. Um, And sometimes people will personalize it and and think, oh, like, I'm a terrible person. I missed this deadline. They're ignoring me. You know, like you said, the person hates me. But in actuality, you're saying, actually, it's helpful to make your needs known. But I'm wondering for students who maybe aren't working with you directly or for students right now, it's still around the time that folks who are interested in applying to grad school are trying to reach out to professionals professors who they'd like to work with or who they look up to or who they want to collaborate in some way, shape or form in the future. Um, What's your take on that? Because I know that your time is very limited. You've got so many things to do. And then on top of the people who you have made a commitment to work with and to be on their committees, there's also an endless amount of people who could at any point reach out to you because they want to work with you in the future. How do you you, um, deal with that? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, our my subfield Central American Studies is very small. There's not a lot of faculty who specialize in it. And so we do get a lot of students. It feels like sometimes like out of nowhere they reach out. Hi, you don't know me, but I study at here and here and I came across your work on X topic um and I, you know, and then the the ask, right? There's always an ask. There's something they want. So one thing that's been helpful for me is when people write what they want in the subject line. You know, um, request for meeting from grad student at Yale, for example. I can see that headline. I mentally prepared to open that email. And there's, there's a couple of things they're gonna ask in a meeting, right? So it's always a good idea to ask for a meeting if you are trying to um, ask for something more than just a meeting right so you shouldn't reach out to someone you don't know to read any of your work you shouldn't reach out to them if you don't know them to make big requests of their time you can ask for a 30-minute meeting get to know them and then say would you be open to reading something for me Um, I've read about your work and I'm wondering how open you are to serving on my committee for my master's or my PhD. Um, That's a big ask. When people ask us to be on their committee, it's not just the committee. We are committing to writing you letters of recommendation for your entire career.
0: And I don't think people realize this. I, I didn't even realize this when I asked my committee members to be on my committee. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's not just, oh, you know, you'll be a, a third or fourth reader, mm-hmm. which, which it, is how they always make it. Seem. <laughs> when you're a student, that's what you think. Right. Yeah. And then after you are or when you're close to re- to done to being done with writing, you're applying to, let's say, postdocs, uh, tenure t- uh, tenure track jobs or just any job, you know, you need references. You could say, well, who knows me the best? Well, it's these three people from my committee. And you ask, hey, can you write me a letter I'm applying to DePaul? um, Or I'm applying to the UC President's postdoc. And they will write you different letters, one for a job, one for a postdoc. And then in my case, I got a job. So you would think that it's over. But then you're applying for funding opportunities, fellowships you're applying for special programs or for awards. Those are the people who may still be writing you letters and you should expand your network, but they're gonna write you letters well into your career. The experts in your field are also the people who will review your book. They're also the people who will review your articles. They're also the people who are going to be potentially writing you letters for tenure, for your tenure cases and for your promotion cases. If you decide that you don't like your job and you're going to leave, you're going to call them up again and they're going to write for you again five, six, seven years after you graduate. So it's a long commitment. When a student says, can you be on my committee, it's not that simple for a faculty member to agree or to decide to stop being on your committee. It's not a, a, a... it's not like this light thing that we just oh yeah, sure or oh no, never mind. We really grapple with it. like am I really going to commit to mentoring the student? So when uh, folks reach out to us, it comes in stages. you know um, when you're an undergraduate, we expect you to not know the proper approaches. and so instead what we typically do at least in my subfield is that uh, folks will reach out folks who I know, my, my peers, they'll say, I have a student who's working on a senior thesis or a, a paper about this subject, and I've asked them to contact you. So expect an email from them. And then when I see the email, sometimes much later, because students get nervous, uh, they'll say, hi, I'm a student at you know wherever, and I, I studied with professor so-and-so, something clicks in my brain that, oh, I was expecting this email and it's here now. A lot of the time, students don't know that. We set, we set them up to, to connect with our colleagues and we prepare our colleagues and we tell them the email is coming. So if it doesn't come, then we start to wonder, hey, what happened to your student? So that starts from the undergraduate level. When students are preparing to apply to graduate school, we also have conversations about it. You know, people will say, I have this brilliant um, undergraduate and they're they're looking at programs. But um, for instance, one colleague said to me, I applied to graduate school a really long time ago, like two decades ago. You're closer to that. Can you talk to them? Um, And so we introduce our students to each other before anything even happens, before any applications come through, before any conferences or talks are given, We already have an idea of kind of like
0: who's coming in. These are the conversations. These are the the things that students don't know about. They're not aware that their faculty mentors are initiating these dialogues with other professors. Um, All they think about is like, okay, my my faculty mentor is helping me by reviewing my paper, doing X, Y, and Z, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And so I can imagine it's a big commitment to work with graduate students, to take them on, to um, then have them enroll. So how, what are your thoughts about how faculty view grad students? Not just, you know, when they're first applying, but once they're officially enrolled and and they're, I I guess I'm saying is expand a little bit more on what you've been saying about how uh, faculty work with students and how it's this like very long-term commitment.
1: Yeah, like how people talk about graduate students behind the scenes is really fascinating. <laughs> there's an excitement, no, there's an excitement about graduate students coming, you know, um, there's a competition about who's, which which institution is gonna get, right, a certain yeah. applicant program that's really cool and, and exciting. And
0: do you think about it as exciting or you know, having that yeah. competition? Really?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think about, for instance, you know, my degrees in Chicana and Chicano Studies. And now there are two well established programs mm-hmm. and the two departments. I am familiar with a lot of faculty in both of the departments. And so I hear sometimes like, Oh, did can you help us recruit so and so? Because I, I went to both, mm-hmm. you know, one for undergrad and one for graduate schools so and say, Oh you know, you're one of our success stories. Can you help us recruit so-and-so to come here?
0: On you know, both ends? Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I, I usually, I mean, I defer to my PhD program yeah. because I was there longer and I like to support, you know, faculty. But once in a while, I hear the excitement from the faculty there. They say, man, we got such a great crop of applicants. I wish that we could admit everyone. Right. Um, and so the excitement is like students are excited to go, but faculty are excited to have students. Because what that means is that there's this intellectual injection of like vibrant energy. People are coming with new ideas. Um, Students often are better read than faculty. So when students read something new and tell us about it, we're like, where did you find that? (laughs) <laughs> Where's the article? What, who, who's the author of that book? So we grow in our intellectual strength because of grad students. Um, so anyway, <laughs> there's this um, really interesting thing that happens. When, there, when the application arrives, you know, faculty kind of sit around and, and they pick they pick who they want to advise based on what the application, Says. So if an application says, I would like to work with Professor Trujillo, um, we have to, you know, the, the faculty will say, well, are you available to take a student? And if I'm not available, like let's say I have a really in depth research project that does not allow me to, you know, I'm, I'm at capacity, I may have to say no, even if that student is very promising and I know them and I like them. Or if i'm going on leave if i'm not going to be around for a year or two it may not be responsible for me to take on a student because i won't be present for them Um, and these are some of the background things you know why students should always list more than one faculty member in the department Mm -hmm. Um, one person may be a good fit on paper but they may not be available to take you
0: that's why i tell the students to reach out in advance if they can and to ask if they're taking any new students this year, because you never know. Maybe you know, you're know you gonna go on leave or the professor is gonna go on leave and then they have that 30 minute meeting with them and they find out and they're like, okay, if I had not done this, I would have applied and not gotten in. So it's really helpful. Um, I'm thinking though, you're saying there's this excitement with having the new grad students and I'm thinking about the graduate students who have been there. <laughs> And how with each year that you stay in graduate school, there's less and less excitement and more of that push to to finish. Um, And sometimes as folks are on their way out, some people don't finish or some people are on their way out and decide to go a different path or realize they no longer wanna become a professor. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about about that about how faculty view individuals who either leave their program early or pursue a non-academic career or just do something other than kind of the normative pathway for, for PhD for PhDs. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Unlike other career tracks, academia is founded on this notion of apprenticeship. I take you on, I train you in my, you know, likeness. So it's very, it's a very egocentric practice. We want to make a ton of little mini-me's. And the other thing that, that also factors into it is that when students succeed, we list those successes as successes of our own.
0: Can you say a little bit more about that? Because well, uh, I, yeah. <laughs>
1: I used to laugh with my PhD advisor because he was promoted, you know, right when I was about to file and It was very exciting and and everyone was saying congratulations and I joked with him, I said, well, you're welcome (laughs) because everything that we do, uh, every step that we achieve looks well on them. Um, As a faculty member, we have an area in our CV where we list active and previous mentorship, whether they're formal or informal. And we actually put the names of our students and what stage they're in. So if I mentor McNair students, it's on my CV. If I mentor a PhD student and I'm the chair, I write that I'm the chair or that I'm an external reader or whatever I might be. Um, And then, you know, a lot of faculty keep metrics on how many letters of recommendation they complete and they list that under their service. So part of what we are paid to do is to mentor students. And we, we list it every single one. So when students are achieving candidacy, it matters to us because you go from being a graduate, just a graduate student to a PhD candidate. It looks good for us. If you file and you complete, we can put the date of completion next to your degree. And that shows our productivity. So um, I think one of the frustrating things for faculty is that graduate school is challenging as students go through the years, things get more difficult emotionally, intellectually, the questions that you ask get more complicated, the dynamics um, among people in the program get more complicated. There's sometimes feelings of of, feeling discouraged, feeling disgruntled, feeling attacked by other people as a student. And then as a faculty member, you're kind of a little removed from that um from the the actual violence that graduate school enacts on people's psyche and so what we see sometimes is that why is the student not achieving the milestone that they were supposed to achieve what's going on here and so a responsive faculty member would say you know we're a couple months past due of this benchmark so what's going on um but a lot of faculty like i said we're busy so we may not even remember that there was a benchmark unless there's a, a structure in the department, you know, a graduate advisor, somebody who says here are the students that are not at Benchmark. Um, and so if the students start to disappear or if they're not showing up or if they're not responding to emails, we kind of move on. We have things to do. Right. Um, and and I know that you're bringing me on here because I'm a little blunt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There are things we have to do. So, unfortunately, it's not part, you know, we're not trained to support students emotionally. Um, perhaps we should be. Perhaps we should be.
0: It doesn't seem like you're trained to support students in pursuing any other um, routes either. Because, like you said, it's an apprenticeship model. Yeah.
1: It's very difficult because the benchmarks don't measure alternatives to academia. And it can be really challenging. Um, some of my history, you know, that I, I wanted to leave academia. I was already applying to jobs in government. I was applying to um, think tanks um, and all these kind of like non-government organizations as well. And um, it surprised my advisor. My PhD advisor said, wait, why? What, what? But you're gonna apply to be a professor though, right? And I said, no. He said, why not? You should at least try said, All right, I'll try. And it worked out, um, which is also not a typical story. A lot of people try for many, many years. Um, And so I I guess that my area of expertise matched what the market wanted that year. There's no way to know. There's no way that my work is in any shape or way better than anyone else's. It was just it fit. It was the right time. I got lucky. Uh, But I was ready to apply to non-academic positions as well, because I was keeping an eye out on what was happening outside of academia. I was positioning myself professionally by working in uh, student affairs jobs as my part-time jobs. Um, And I was able to negotiate um, longer working hours and what was allowed in our TA contract. so I TA'd because I had to, but I also got 10 hours working for grad, grad, the graduate division, or um, I also worked as the uh, vice president for the grad student association. So I was in direct contact with you know directors, deans, um, folks at the administrative level. And so when I saw what their jobs were, I thought that's a possible track for me too. So I wasn't completely 100% set on academia. And revealing that to my committee was challenging because they they were like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, But I will say this. Now that I'm on the other side, professors don't just list the student they mentored and their graduation date and their university placement. We also say that all of our students are placed, right? All of our students are employed in some way um, to boost those numbers in the reports that we have to send to the college. So whatever you end up doing, we, we hear about it. We know about it. We talk about it um, and, and people are very interested in that as well. You know, they'll say, oh, isn't so-and-so uh, a dean somewhere? Or isn't so-and-so an IT tech person at a large corporation? Yeah, they are. Like, it would be great to have an alumni panel, you know, to bring students back and and see the diversity of of what's possible with a degree in this from here. But, yeah, there's definitely not a culture that that has trained us in any way to support students leaving academia because all we know is what we've done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One thing I have told students like current graduate students that have asked me for advice who say, I don't I don't think I want to become a professor anymore, but I think I want to get a job in student affairs or in the academic affairs or do what you do. What do you recommend? And um, I usually say, you know, what I did was like what you, what you were just saying, like I had my part-time jobs. I had, you know, one, basically one foot, foot in, in one, one door and another foot in another. But I, I kept those two things very separate. And I didn't really communicate that with my advisor because I, you know, I did not have a positive experience, especially with my first advisor who was very toxic and who discouraged anything that wasn't research. It was all a waste of time, according to that individual. And so I tell them, you know, depending on the the culture of your department, if it's discouraged, you you may want to keep it to yourself. And I, I hate having to say things like that because I don't like, I, I don't like encouraging people to have to hide anything or to like not be themselves in any spaces. But it's it's true, you know. In some cases, it 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 may further complicate things. In my experience, when I told my second advisor who was more supportive about me leaving um, academia and um, no longer pursuing tenure track jobs. He was unwilling to write me recommendation letters for anything other than tenure track jobs. And so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that in other departments, at least they do have this investment of following up uh, with people who have completed the PhD to see where they are and what kind of career uh, careers they pursued. But I'm wondering is that still true about folks that have left is there any investment whatsoever do you just completely move on if a student leaves the program early because I am hearing about some people who are debating whether or not to stay in grad school and considering leaving um, and leaving perhaps with a masters or leaving once they've obtained their candidacy and and they're no longer interested or invested in, in finishing.
1: So. One thing that I like to always say is that the the language that I prefer to use when people leave a program is that they separate, they separated from the program. Because I feel like leaving still implies that there's something there that was worthwhile and you're leaving it. But separating is like I've seen my choices and I'm making the choice to separate. And definitely a lot of people separate from programs. I wouldn't say that there's the same level of investment and following up. I think there's more investment in the people who completed it, because those are the metrics that the college tracks. When it comes to curiosity, individuals who cared about you when you were there, they will continue to care about you when you're separated. It's about your individual relationships with those people. In terms of this, you know, whether you should keep it secret or not that you're pursuing these types of job hunting activities, it's up to you. But I will say that it is necessary to build networks outside of your academic network Definitely. that are separate, mm-hmm. separate networks. So one thing that I did, I approached my um, college alumni association, which is a very strong alumni association at UCLA. And I started you know, going to networking events and meeting as many people as I could to see what kind of jobs they had. Um, one thing that I learned early on is that it's easier for you to get a job in any field, especially in STEM fields, but in any field, if you know somebody who works there already, they recommend you. Sometimes they even get a bonus if you are hired. So you need to meet as many people as you can. Um, and it's hard. I know for, I'm extroverted, so it's not that hard for me, but for <laughs> yeah. for introverts, it's really hard.
0: I love that you just put it out there.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's hard for me, but I know it takes time and I've seen, Mm -hmm. I coach my students through it. So I've seen how hard it is. But one thing you can do is if you meet somebody and they seem like they have a career that you would love, ask them for their card or ask to connect with them on LinkedIn. That's all you have to do in, in the interaction. Listen to them and just ask for their contact. When you go home that same day or within 24 hours, email them, send them a message and say, it was great to meet you. I'm really interested in what it took for you to get to where you are. Do you have time for an informational meeting? 15 minutes, 20 minutes, just to tell me about how you got there. And then it becomes one-on-one. So it's less intimidating than in a large network setting. And I did this with someone who I met, who worked in the student affairs position, uh, who I met at an event. I emailed them right away. I got um, an informational meeting with them the next day. And at the meeting, this person who had been trained in networking printed out the um, web profiles of three people I should talk to. Gave me the profiles and said, here's their email. Make sure you contact them this week, And it was the same type of thing. Once I contacted those people, they knew that I was going to contact them because I was already set up. You know, they had they had heard of me. I said, Oh, yeah, so and so said that you'd be getting in touch. How can I help you What what would you like to know. And people are very friendly and willing to talk about what they're passionate about. So I felt very confident that I had enough connections in student affairs in LA that I could if I needed to transition into a job there Um, just because of the people that you meet and and learning how they did it it's very possible I also learned that if you have a few years of graduate school under your belt even if you didn't finish a degree it counts toward work experience and higher education and I think you probably know about that more than me (laughs) what it counts toward, they pay you more when you start.
0: Yeah, depending on your education level, your experience, that's where you start on the scale too, yeah. Um, wow, this is all really um, insightful. I love how you, you use the term separating rather than leaving because I'm still using, I've been using the term, and my last episode was on leaving higher ed as opposed to separating from higher ed. Although when you say the word separate, I can't help but think of it as a toxic relationship that I'm breaking up and separating from. <laughs> so that I make that association with, with that term as well. So um, I'm wondering if there's anything else that maybe we didn't get to talk about today with regard to what you wish students knew, both undergrad and grad students, about professors, about um, what it is that you're all juggling and um, how to best interact and work with uh, professors.
1: Well, I have two things. One is the things that professors say to each other about students, depending on how they're feeling about their students is usually a reflection of how they're feeling about themselves and what they were doing at that same point in their training. So they might be comparing their student to what they think they should be doing based on what their experience was, right? So um, it was very difficult for me once I became a professor to have my my former professors talking to me about graduate students,
0: because these are my
1: friends. These students were my friends. And so I would hear them say, I'm not sure so-and-so is gonna finish. I'm not sure whether they're fully committed and I'm not sure whether you know, all of these kind of um, negative feelings about students. And I started thinking about it and I realized, well, I wonder if this student has communicated recently with their faculty to explain what's going on and what's coming next, you know, because it's very difficult to get into a habit of showing up for yourself and letting your faculty know, hey, I'm late on this benchmark, but within six months, I'll be there. You know, because as faculty, then you get a frame of reference of like, OK, they know where they're at. We can move forward now that uh, th- that is opposed to I don't know anything about where they are. They disappeared. Are they have they given up? And you don't want negative feelings to form around where you are. So locate yourself and be accountable about where you are with your committee, at least. Um, at the end of the day, to get your degree, you just need three signatures. So. Those are the signatures that matter. Um, The other thing that I'll mention is that faculty are are people with lives and illnesses and families and financial problems and a lot of different problems. Um, And sometimes, especially when we see our high-functioning faculty who are superstars and they seem to have it all together and know everything, everybody has issues. Everybody has insecurities. Things they are dealing with that people don't know about. Um, And so often, you know, your challenges are not just about you. Our relationship with students are not just about the students' shortcomings or whatever. It might be about us and what we're going through. You know, maybe I feel like today I uh, going to graduate school was a mistake. Why am I a professor? This sucks. You know, I'm getting violence from committees at the university and violence from maybe my department chair, which I don't experience by the way, thankfully. Um, But maybe I'm getting violence from the institution. And now I'm projecting it onto my students because I haven't developed a healthy way of coping with that. So sometimes it's about our personal challenges being projected and not about how meritorious the students are. Um, And I think that that is really difficult to to come face to face with. Um, After I finished my degree, I started learning about certain faculty, you know, who had a variety of different health challenges. And it was really difficult for me because I felt guilty. I thought, oh, I was talking back to my professor or I was being too demanding on their time. And I had no idea that all of this was going on in the background until I graduated and they revealed a little bit more about their personal lives. Um, Because with students, we do maintain a a level of of professional separation, which I think is necessary, Um, but the relationship evolves over time as well.
0: Uh, What am I trying to say? You said so much. I heard the part about communicating with faculty and humanizing faculty and you saying that, you know, faculty have their own lives, but at the same time, sometimes it's, you know, there's this disconnect between the students and the faculty, the students not saying what's going on with them, not advocating for themselves, and they go missing, and then you think the worst about them, and vice versa, students not thinking about the faculty and their lives, and assuming that they're available at all hours or you know, personalizing something that the faculty member said to them, but it really, it's about the faculty member. Um, But then I also heard you say professional separation. So I think there's just this fine line of making sure that you communicate, making sure that you advocate for yourself, um, trying your best to not personalize things. uh, And at the same time, you know, not do the opposite of like, over communicating and over sharing and getting too personal either. Um, I don't even know like how to give advice to students other than to say, just make sure you're always advocating for yourself. So no matter what, make sure you're advocating for yourself and make sure that you try your best to communicate um, so that you you don't let other people kind of speak for you. Um, This is really, really helpful and insightful. I think that a lot of the students will or listeners will gain a lot from your conversation, from everything that you've shared, from your experience. If they're interested in reaching out to you, if they resonated with something that you said, if they're one of the folks who uh, are, part of, are part of your specialization or if they're like a Central American student who was just was inspired by you, how, how can they reach you? Is there a way for them to reach you or follow you?
1: Yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at E-N Um, My inbox, my work email is also open. Um, so one of the advice takeaways that I would give people is be communicative with goals. Right. So if you're if you're entering into a situation where there's going to be a challenge for you, maybe you're behind. Maybe you feel like your professor hates you or you feel like you're gonna drop out or something. That's okay, but just communicate some kind of timetable to us. Maybe you, you're, you haven't shown up, but you know, I, I definitely hid from my advisor for about two years after my proposal defense, because I really wanted to leave. I really wanted to leave. I filled out the paperwork to withdraw from my PhD program and everything. And when I showed up with the withdrawal paperwork, my advisor was like, where is this coming from? And I said, you haven't talked to me in two years. And he said, you haven't talked to me in two years. And I was like, well, why should I talk to you? Why don't you talk to me? And so there's, you know, this miscommunication. And at that point, he said, let's give it six months. Let's work on a monthly basis. And so that timetable worked. And I emailed him after we talked, I said, here's what I need from you in the next six months to feel like I can stay. And he was responsive and he said, here's what I promise to do that I haven't done. And, and in the next six months we'll have another t- another uh, conversation. Um, if you reach out to faculty about, you know, you want to come to our grad program, just say it, can I meet with you on Zoom for 20 minutes and give us to give us a date give us two times, you know, put the time, put the time in, put the benchmark in. That way we know you're more serious. That way we can start to schedule you in. That way we know at what point we have to check in with you about whether you're going to drop out or stay or turn in your exam or you know, if you need a letter of rec, like we need to know with time because the schedule, at least for me, the schedule is the master. So yeah, if people want to reach out to me, you can do that, but ask me for a specific time
0: Be specific (laughs) and to the point, focus on your goals. Don't waste people's time. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that wraps up today's episode. Uh, Thank you so much, Um, Esther. It's been, I always learn something from you, (laughs) good or bad. I always learn something from you
1: glad to to uh to have this frank conversation but you know I said we don't think about grad students we do we think we think about them sometimes sometimes <laughs> but it's usually good things I think yeah. most grad students don't realize that but we're usually very proud to say that we have grad students that's
0: awesome thank you again yeah. Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you tune in. You can also support the podcast by donating to my Patreon page, Anger page, or Venmo account, which is at Grad School Touring. If you have questions or episode topics, you can contact me by sending me a DM on Instagram sending me an email to gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com, sending me a voice message on Anchor, or sending me a message via my personal website at yvettemartinezvu.com. Until next time.